Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Air Force is moving away from making investment decisions based on Excel spreadsheets, something it's long tried to modernize. For nearly three years, though, a team of about 200 people has been working on a decision advantage tool. They say we'll soon let senior leaders easily find out how even a single financial decision will affect everything else. For details, Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis spoke to the Air Force Assistant Deputy Chief of Staff for Plans and Programs, Joe McDade. What's the new tool about and what capabilities does it provide that airmen and women haven't previously had? Yeah, Anastasia, it's a great question. So for three years, we've quietly been working with a group of people across the headquarters of the Air Force to develop a model-based decision support tool to help us make better uh, investment decisions. What's really important about that is when we make investment decisions today, it's based on Excel spreadsheets or PowerPoints, this tool will allow a senior leader to see the dynamic impacts if you're going to invest in something how does it ripple across the ecosystems of the Air Force? Readiness, aircraft availability, strategic basing. That's new. That's never been done before. And could you take us through the timeline? Uh, the timeline, again, three years of DevOps with a, uh, a tremendous small business out of uh, Silicon Valley. Their name is Rhombus Power. Uh, we've developed a, a platform called Rhombus Guardian. And uh, our first iteration of this tool will be deployed in January. Then there'll be a series of spirals as we continue to gain confidence in the applications. What's really important for your readers to understand is we, we're going into this complicated uh, decision support tool with our eyes wide open. All models are wrong, some models are useful. I am sure we will get lots of feedback about the models and how it's working. We're going to take all that constructive criticism and make the entire ecosystem better over time. So our commitment in my organization is to make sure we use this for the long term, tune the models over time to be able to give senior leaders like Secretary Kendall the decision support tools that he's looking for. Could you elaborate on the apps that are coming and what's coming after? Sure. So uh, we're, we have a series of apps to help us build the POM. One of the uh, suite of apps we call what-if tools. So when a senior leader says, what if I do something, a lot of the time it relates to force structure. So we've got weapon system sustainment apps. We've got uh, flying hour apps. We have manpower apps. Those manpower apps are all of those three are now tailored to specific weapon systems. So now when a, a senior leader says, I want to add or, or take away aircraft, what are the costs going to be? What are the implications going to be? What are my strategic basing options going to be? Uh, and so on and so forth. And what did you find during testing? One of the most surprising things for us was as we uh, had our most experienced people uh, develop the code and we said, okay, the code is now final so we can load it up to the cloud. You have to freeze your code to do that. Uh, there was a several month delay before we actually compared the, the, uh, the automated tools to the manual process. When we did that, we found out that some of our folks uh, needed more education training just to do the manual process. So what, what I dearly hope will happen over time is we will improve both our education and the use of this tool and there'll be a synergistic relationship. When people question the tool, it may be that the tool needs to be improved. It may be that we're also identifying an opportunity for training and education for the person who thinks it's wrong. So I'm excited about that and I hope it's a synergistic relationship that makes the Air Force better over time. Right, and you're looking for companies that could provide you some capabilities that you can build over it. What are you looking for? Maybe give us an example. 
Well, as, as companies see what we're doing, uh, we want them to be able to, once we do the demos to them, I think companies will instantly see what we've done and how they can make it better. And we're eager to take that kind of input from industry and then see how we can find the resources to let those folks make the system better over time. And you talked about how challenging the process has been. Could you talk a little bit about some of the biggest challenges that you faced over the last three years? So when anyone says your software has to max the, match the complexity of what you're actually dealing with, that rolls right off the tongue. When you actually try and go after that, that is insanely complicated. So the Air Force is a whole series of very complicated systems that have very complicated interrelationships. So to create those models is one of the reasons it took three years. Now that we have the models in place, as I mentioned in my presentation, we have to go back and tailor each of those large models like weapon systems, sustainment, flying hours, to individual weapon systems. So as you can see, what starts to happen here is we, you do the meta models and then you have to do many, many, many uh, tailored models. So the complexity of that ecosystem gets to be uh, fairly large very quickly. And how does it fit into the broader picture? Secretary Kendall is looking for digital decision support uh, tools. We're hopeful that as we launch our initial iterations and the secretary and other senior leaders start to actually get experience using the tools, that it will become one of the backbones for what the secretary is seeking to do to make us more agile uh, and more um, optimized for great power competition. How are you sharing it with other services? How are you working with other services? That's a great question. And we have shared with the, uh, with the Navy in particular. We're uh, briefing CAPE next week. Um, but the point of the entire exercise, and, in, and within the Department of the Air Force, we have Space Force. So what we've told the Space Force for some time is what we've done is de-risked your ability to adopt this if you choose to. They haven't made a decision yet, but what we're, we're trying to do is say to both the Navy and to the Space Force, if you decide to go down this path, there's a lot of non-recurring uh, research and engineering that had to happen, and, and we've, we've already funded that. So it should be an easier choice if they decide it's useful. What are you looking forward in the coming year? What I want to do, again, is back to senior leader decision makers. We're in a very uncertain financial environment. They have to make very difficult decisions. So when a senior leader is striking a balance between readiness, modernization, or procurement, uh, how can I give them the tools so they make informed decisions? And most importantly, understand, if you invest in this thing over here, how does that ripple through the rest of the ecosystem of the entire Air Force? I'm excited that you find this newsworthy and we look forward to working with you and others to get the word out so that we can take advantage of what industry can bring to bear. Joe McDade, the Air Force Assistant Deputy Chief of Staff for Plans and Programs, speaking to Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating 
and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and in the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.